My name is Frank Place. I'm the director of the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets, or PIM for short. And it's my pleasure to welcome, welcome you to this PIM webinar. Today's topic is Domestic Support Disciplines for the 21st Century, a blueprint for the WTO 12th Ministerial Conference. While it is not yet clear when and where the ministerial conference will take place because of the COVID-19 crisis, it is even more clear now that global co coordination and collaboration is key in facing challenges in our agricultural and food systems. So it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers and, and experts on the topic. V Valeria Pinheiro is a senior research coordinator at the Markets, Trade and Institutions Division at IFPRI. Her research interests include international trade, development strategies and economic growth, growth linkages and regional dynamics. She has significant experience working in the areas of economic development and growth using general equilibrium models as an analytical tool and has for the last several years led courses in many countries teaching the theory and application of computable general equilibrium models. David Laborde is a senior research fellow in the Marcus Trade and Institutions Division as well. And he is the theme leader on mac macroeconomics and trade for IFPRI. And within the PIM program, Dave, David leads our cluster of research on the policy environment for value chains. Research interests include globalization, international trade, measurement and modeling of protectionism, multilateral and regional trade liberalization, as well as environmental issues, such as climate change biofuels. Recently, he has been focusing on costing the roadmap to achieving SDG2 on zero hunger in a globalized context while considering the role of goods, capital, and migration flows. Before I hand it over to Valeria and David, a few notes on how we proceed. The presentation will last for about 30 minutes with the rest of the time dedicated to questions and answers. During the presentation, we invite all, all of you participants to send in questions via the chat window on the right side of your screens or the question window, whatever you can see on your screens. Uh, we'll compile them and we'll relay them to our presenters in the second half of the webinar during the Q&A session. We are also recording the webinar and we'll make it available on our website shortly after the live event. So with that, uh, let me hand it over, I think, first to Valeria, who will start us off. Good morning, everyone. Good morning or good afternoon. And thank you for joining us today. The first thing I would like to say is that uh, we've been working closely with our colleagues from IISD and IFPRI as well in this um, um, project. So we would like to also mention the names of Jonathan Hepburn, Karen Smaller, um, Sophia Murphy, and Joe Glover, Joseph Glover, also at uh, IFPRI. So before we start uh, talking about domestic support per se and um, the disciplines for the uh, 21st century, I would like to um, take you over uh, three slides that really show us what's going on in the world in the last kind of decades. So the first one what I just like to show you is that since 2001, agricultural trade has more than tripled in terms of current dollar value, growing at an annual rate of more than 9%. While part of the growth was due to sharp increases in the past decade, export volumes of grains, oil seeds, meat, and poultry increased as well. The other one we would like to show you is what's going on with um, 
the agricultural value of production. Uh, we can see that has grown uh, in the last decades. Um, but the important thing in this slide is how it has changed um, in related with the composition compared to other countries. So we can see that there are some countries that the agricultural production has increased between 1995 and 2010. Those are the first two columns there. We can see that China followed by India and other developing and less developed countries are the ones that have seen an increase, while the European Union and other developed countries have seen a decrease in the share of the value of production or at least the value of production of their own countries. Uh, it is also important to look at what's the projection of this value of production to 2030 to see what are the negotiation um, groups or ideas um, that are going on uh, today. So we can see in the last, uh, comparing the middle one with the last column, that um, China and India, for example, are going to be increasing and the US will decrease their value of production. The important thing here to notice is that China will still grow, but it won't grow at the same growth rate that it has done previously. And the last one that I would like to show you is that um, the evolution of trade shares from 1995 and 2015. We can see that there are still uh, major food importing and exporting countries, but the uh, number of countries that now participate in trade have really increased. So in this slide, we're looking at exports and in the following, we're looking at imports. And for both, uh, both things we see the same um, relationship in this that now we see more countries being part of trade. So why domestic support? Why are we looking at this? The first thing we see is that this year with the coronavirus has exposed weaknesses in existing the economic system. There is a need for a more comprehensive coordinated global response. Trade should be part of this, but also there is a need for more predictable and equitable rules on domestic support. We also know that to maintain a supply of safe and nutritious agricultural products to feed the growing population that we see, we will have to overcome various challenges, such as climate change, urbanization, existence of conflicts, and limited number of natural resources, land, water, land degradation, etc. So it is important to discuss domestic support as it creates distortions in the markets, giving wrong signals to producers and thus helping to create inefficiencies and incentives for production in countries that are not competitive or non-competitive producers. So support should not harm producers in other countries. Also, to achieve the sustainable development goals, more specifically the SDG2 that covers food security and nutrition and the SDG6 that it is the efficient use of water, it will require paying attention to good agricultural practices and by this some examples are water management, precision agriculture, etc. So support should not undermine environmental sustainability. So under the WTO um, when we talked about domestic support it is classified in different boxes. So here is the drawing of uh, what are the boxes that are available uh, for classification so every domestic support that each country has, it has to be classified or put in each of these, in, in one of these boxes. So the first one is the green box. This is support that causes minimal or non-trade distortions. 
and they are exempt from support limits. Some examples of this could be extension, R&D, disaster relief policies, and things like that. Then we will have the ones that are classified as distorting, um, trade distorting. The first one that we have there is the blue box or the Article 6.5 of the Agreement of Agriculture. And this is support to farmers in the form of direct payments that are provided with production, but that do not increase with production levels. And this support is not limited. Then we can move to the amber one, and the amber includes the minimis and the AMS of the Agricultural Measure of Support. This support is linked to production and prices, hence it is considered trade distorting and they are limited. And then the last one is the Article 6.2, that is only for developing countries, so only developing countries can use or can, can use this box. And they can provide unlimited support for input and investment programs under this uh, classification of support. So it is important to see what's the trend and how um, countries used domestic support. So it is very important to know who is giving the support, how are they doing that, and how much is that level of support. So in this first uh, figure that I would like to show you or slide, uh, we can see that much domestic support that it is not classified as green box, so these are all the ones that are trade distorting, is concentrated in a few large economies, China, India, the United States, the European Union, and Japan. To put into context the size and evolution of domestic support in the world, we can see in this slide the expenditure of domestic support. And again, here I'm not including the green box. We're only talking about the AMS, the minimis, and the article 6.2 and the blue box. This slide represented in billions of dollars. And in the first row, we can see as an example, three developing countries, that they are the most relevant in this discussion. And in the, in the second line is the three developed countries that as well are important. So we can see here that the European Union, which is the left um, and the second row, we can see that there was a declining, uh, continuing decline in forms of domestic support uh, all the way till the 2007. And since then, we can see that European Union, Japan, and the United States, all of them are more or less in around 10 billion of that support. In contrast, developing countries, such as China and India, have seen a significant increase in the amount of support they have provided over the past 10 years. This is particularly evident in the case of China, where total trade distorting support exceeded 20 billion in 2015. In the case of India, input and investment payments, which is the Article 6.2 that I already mentioned, um, accounts for most of the support provided and has increased in recent years, reaching over 20 billion in 2018. That is the last year of the notifications at the WTO. This slide shows the same six countries from the previous slide, but expresses percentage of the value of production. Um, if we look at these six countries, we can um, see that they can be divided into three broad groups when non-green box support as a value of uh, production. So we can see that Japan and India are the ones that has the biggest one. It is 10% and 8%. The United States has only 5%, the European Union 4%, and Brazil and China are at 2%. Um, looking at the case of China to see or to 
illustrate how important it is to look at trade support not only as um, total amount of money, but also a percentage of total production. We can see that China is the largest than provided by any other countries. The support it has notified is actually considerably lower than that of the WTO members when expresses a share of value of production. And this is because the size of China's farm sector is very big um, and should not be surprising that support levels are higher in absolute terms than in smaller countries. So why is this important? What matters is the extent to which the government is providing trade historian support relative to the overall size of the farm sector, which will be different depending on the countries. This is like so far we have seen general domestic support, but we also have to pay attention to the fact that developed and developing countries support agriculture in a different way. With a greater proportion of developed countries, trade distorting support dedicated to specific intervention of products and developing countries that prefer non-product specific support, like the use of fertilizer subsidies, for example. So developed countries, which is this slide, which we show the same three countries that uh, we looked previously. Um, we see that European Union and Japan, for example, 90 or 80, between 90 and 80% of the traded for the support respectively is graded in the form of product specific subsidies. And that is the orange uh, color that we see on those uh, uh, graph, in the graph. Looking in more detail, some examples, that is worth mentioning could be the case of rice in South Korea, which accounts for 70% of all support that is towards trade. Uh, while in the European Union, this proportion accounts for 35% for dairy products and almost 20 for wheat. The United States have also dairy products and maize that account for 40% of all trade uh, trade support. And Japan, they has as important the pork and beef, which accounts for really two thirds of the total account. This slide instead shows the same three developing countries that we looked at. And we can see here clearly that developing countries have tended mostly to provide non-product specific support. This is particularly the case of India or Brazil, where more than 90% of the aid received in recent years has been provided as non-specific product. And so we can see here that is the gray and combination of the gray and the um, green one. So, so far we only looked at the total. We did not include any specific commodities, but it is important to look at the concentration of specific products and product groups when looking at support. Something to take into consideration is that support can lead to the overproduction of goods associated with um, with also high green, uh, with greenhouse gas emissions, that that could um, exacerbate negative effects of climate change. So reducing the concentration of support in individual commodities could help improve both the sustainability and the efficiency of markets for food and agriculture, but can also contribute to reducing poverty and food insecurity. Across the WTO membership, a large share of support classified as trade distorting is also focused on some limited number of products. As we can see in that graph, we can see that maize, rice, milk, dairy, beef, and some other cereals are very important, and also cotton for developing countries. 
So having said all this, members tried to negotiate new disciplines related to proposed limits on the blue box, the AMS level, the minimis, and thinking about CAPS and uh, other OTDS constraints. So one of the important things is that we need a simpler approach that can help harmonize support levels, and there is a need for, for this. So what are the options moving forward? They will relate to the current level of the trade, of the overall trade historian support, anti-concentration disciplines, special differential treatment, improved transparency, and public stock holdings. Currently, we can see six negotiation groups that they have different modalities and proposals and ideas. And David will walk us through them. So David, floor is yours. Thanks a lot, Valeria, and thanks everyone for joining us today. Um, Valeria has given you this very nice landscape about where we are in terms of domestic support. So basically, money that are spent by government to support their farmers and their agricultural sectors. And you already have seen what will be quite important for the next part of the discussion today is, first, the world has changed drastically uh, in terms of who are the big players, in terms of the number of countries participating to international trade, about the size of these different countries from the irregular round. And basically 20 years ago, now 25 years ago, so a quarter of a century, when we define the rules that will help countries to implement farm policies without damaging um, the uh, interest of their uh, neighbors and of other participants to world trade. So we are basically right now in an um, environment and in a legal setting that have been negotiated about 30 years ago and started to implement in 25 years ago. And the world has changed, and this is why we need to think about how we can adapt this discipline that actually has played an important role in bringing some rationality in some of the farm policies by uh, the largest economies so far, and how we can make sure that it's compatible with the development goals that we have, in particular the SDG, both in terms of social development and environmental outcomes. So what we have seen is the world has changed. We are spending, uh, when I say we, the largest economies and the most advanced economies and the big emerging economies, uh, a bit more than 150 billions of uh, subsidies that actually impact markets, impact competition. And of course, we know from the beginning that countries that have enough money, enough fiscal um, capacity can use the policy space that is given by this discipline. And part of it will create negative externalities for other countries when actually the poorest uh, economies, even if you give them policy space, they don't have the fiscal means to use it and it creates distortion. So what type of discipline we need and how we want to, to shape the future of trade negotiation is what is going to be very important. The last point I will, I'm going to, to focus on is the same numbers can be represented in different ways and have different implications. So yes, China is spending uh, more money in the last few years in its farm sector than the US. But the Chinese agricultural uh, production and agricultural sector is actually quite large. And so in relative terms, 
the uh, China is spending less in relative terms than the US. So how we are going to look at numbers, how we are going to define these disciplines will matter a lot uh, in a system where people may be looking for fairness, but uh, fairness is a highly relative uh, concept. So next slide, please. So we are going to look at some of the recommendations that we, we have provided in a new publication that have been uh, released last week, where actually we provide this background information and also identify key elements for the future negotiation and the future disciplines. Uh, in this spirit of making things simpler, so we are going to use a, a very similar concept to what was introduced in the last uh, decade uh, and during the door around this concept of overall trace distorting support. So step-by-step -step phasing out of the boxes that uh, actually has led some uh, subtle uh, policy reorganization uh, and, and in some cases have not improved transparency, even if we should acknowledge that all of this work has been key in uh, helping documenting which country are doing what and what type of policies uh, we are doing. So it's both good for international cooperation, but also just for countries to be honest with themselves about what they do and where they spend their money on. So we are going to simplify this and to uh, propose that the disciplines is basically based on the value of production. So it's normal that largest economy spend more money than a smallest economy, but in terms of relative um, size, it's what matters. Still, we need to think about how to implement the special and differential treatments, either by providing more time to uh, have a new disciplines or even to allow for more policy space. But as I've already said, you know, uh, giving higher cap in terms of subsidies, it means that you need money to use it. So actually, what we've seen in the past is the country that may need the most of this policy space actually to invest in the agricultural sectors in order to catch up may not be the country that have the, the means to use it. So the time dimension may be more important than the overall limits. And last but not least, what we do in terms of um, concentration of subsidies, because if you spend 20 billions on all your products, or if you spend 20 billion just on one product, and let's say that this product is called cotton and is quite important for a large number of poor households in the world and in Africa, uh, you are not going to create the same negative externalities. So how we can limit this concentration of subsidies with a specific discipline by product is also important. Last but not least, we discussed the question of public stockholding programs um, that actually may not be too difficult to handle if you really try to uh, separate what you do in supporting your farmers and what is actually farm support through the procurement a strategy versus what you do also in terms of providing relatively cheap food for your population. So there is a lot of options, a lot of numbers, and in order to digest them, you need to put them in a model. I'm not going to uh, offer you uh, technicalities here, just to say that we are using a, a global model because here it's key to look at the policies of all the countries at the same time in an homogeneous setting. Uh, you cannot just look at one policy uh, separated from the other, because also it's not just the fact that you have big players that are going to spend money. If you have 100 small countries that start to spend also money, that also distorts world markets, okay? That's the amount of public money that we uh, 
put on the market that actually matters. So we want to have the big country and the small countries, and also take into account that you have interaction across um, agricultural uh, sectors, but also between the agricultural sector and the rest of the economy. And last but not least, this money used by the uh, public authority to support farmers has to come from somewhere. So it's taxpayer money. And there is also an efficiency cost to decide to spend money on farm versus on other things. And with this type of setting, we can track this. Last but not least, it's a dynamic model and it's quite important. So yes, next slide, uh, Valeria, you were right. Uh, in addition to what we do normally in Euragrodep for this specific exercise, we go very much more in detail in terms of policy instruments used by the different countries for the different products. So we have policy that capture the payment to output, so production subsidies. We have a payment to intermediate consumption on fertilizer, fuel, feed, seed, including tax rebate, because we should not forget that, for instance, a part of what we call fuel subsidies, in particular in developed economies, are actually just the fact that farmers doesn't have to pay the full taxation on fuel, so it's a tax rebate. So that's actually a kind of, of subsidies, uh, because it's an advantage given just to, uh, to farmers. Uh, you have payment to factor of production, so it can be subsidized investment, it can be a payment per hectare of, of, of cropland, so, or, or per cow, so still uh, in giving incentive for people to invest either in specific sectors or at least in agriculture, and then payment to farmers. That may uh, be, uh, if they are just income support, much less distorsive. But we also, and that's the type of typology of instruments that are important from an economic point of view, how it shifts incentive and incentive for who. Now, at the same time, we have these disciplines, this legal classification of policies that are the boxes at the WTO. And it means that any payment belonging to an instrument has to be uh, implemented and uh, classified in the table I, I provide here, where you see basically that you have different type of boxes from the WTO that will be um, under different rules. And at the same time, you need to know if this money received by this farmer is for this specific product, so it will be a product-specific payment, or is a non-product-specific payment that uh, you receive just because uh, you, you are a farmer, but you cannot tie it to a specific program. And you are, that's not something that you just guess with the instrument. For example, that you have fertilizer subsidy that will be linked to some specific crops because they are based on, let's, a program that is about subsidizing fertilizer to corn um, or maize farmers, while you have also broader uh, fertilizer subsidy that will benefit actually all crops, and therefore are not crops specific, at least product specific. And last but not least, we have a dynamic setting where we have this cap, this overall limits about the amount of money that government can spend, and when you eat them, you need to change your policies. So really, we are having a system where even without new disciplines, if you use all your policy space, you need to change some things. And what we do, uh, and in the presentation uh, that I'm going to, to do in a couple of minutes now on the results, we are just going to consider that people will cut all their programs proportionally. We are not implementing here a specific political economic criteria that say, okay, if no, I have to cut my 20 billion spending to reach 15 billions. Did I cut the money on the cotton producer, on the livestock farmers? Here we are just going to say that 
we are going to cut everyone by uh, one fourth. Next slide, please. So uh, that will be one of the most complex graphs I'm going to present to you today. Uh, what is just important is maybe to understand the different elements because all the stories we, we are going to have is about this. So first, uh, we have a value of production that is increasing over time. And this is what you see with the red square. So if we take a country, we know that for most of the countries, their value of production is going to increase over time. So if you give them a discipline like the de minimis that is based on 5% of the value of production, you give them a policy space that is in blue that increase over time. And this is why there is a first discussion about do we want fixed or uh, index value of production uh, and policy space basically index on the value of production. Now we have potentially policymakers that would like to spend money like in my dotted line with the light yellow and they would like to spend more money than this five percent of the value of production and potentially to increase this over time now with the euro round we have this orange line uh, that right now is orange and with some uh, black dots that is what has been negotiated so far and you say that today yes for some countries already by 2022 uh, or 2023, uh, the current disciplines will force them to change what they had in mind. But what we are discussing today is this yellow curve. It's a new discipline. And actually, during the transition period, it can increase, it can lead to a current decrease of uh, subsidies before it increases again when the production will rise enough. But you know, that's this. And next slide, please. You will see. This is a movement we are going to try to model in the scenario, is how we move from an old discipline to a new discipline with some specific settings. And this is why actually you are pretty happy to have a model because that starts to be a lot of information for all the programs for all the countries over time. Next slide, please. So we need to define a few questions uh, that will actually shape the scenario. What do we do with overall discipline? And as I have said, we are going to go in a direction where I will show uh, a simplified framework where you give policy space to people based on the share of the uh, value of production. And we are not going to touch uh, policy that are considered as not distorting measure. So we are not going to touch the green box. That's a very interesting discussion. But just to say that in what we're going to show, we didn't touch a green box payment. We are going to have some special and differential treatments based on the policy space we give, but we will also question what's happened if we remove Article 6.2. That is actually this big gap of uh, this big box of, of subsidies that some countries like India are using significantly, and that has an impact. As I've said, we are going to use something that will be like the de minimis, and like the de minimis, it will be based on the current value of production. But some countries have proposed fixed value of production. And last but not least, you have a number of, of specific parameters and numbers to put beyond all this ID. Next slide, please. So you can do a lot of combination and you can imagine a lot of scenarios in order to determine what can be the best one. I'm not going to go all over them today, but just to say that there's a lot of combination to, to combine. Next slide, please. I'm focusing on four to illustrate the different point. One is 
where we have these constraints on uh, uh, on overall trade distancing support based on current production. This is my dark green. The light green is what's happened if we say, no, we are going to use the current level of value of production as a reference here, and we are not going to increase the policy space when the value of production will increase. The light blue is going to be my dark green scenario where we start to put specific constraints on product. So we are putting a higher discipline at the product level than overall to avoid uh, some concentration. So actually the threshold by product will be higher than the, uh, global, the, the average for the country. Uh, but the goal is that people doesn't spend all the money in one product. And then we have a high ambition, high ambition scenario that basically combine the most stringent condition from the first three scenario and uh, the inclusion of Article 6.2 under the normal discipline. So if you have some policies that are for development but are still uh, leading to market distortion, they have to be accounted for. Next slide, please. So what it means, it means in terms of uh, policy space, what we see is here by 2025, uh, currently, we have the IMS and Inno framework. So this IMS is this kind of extra policy space that developed countries have obtained during the earlier round that basically no developing country had a, a similar policy space, just a few minutes to get a, a bit. But it's quite, it creates actually a big imbalance in the system because everyone has the minimis. Developing countries have more space for the minimis, but developed countries are still have the uh, IMS payment, uh, that is quite a lot of policy space, by the way. And this is something we propose to, to remove in our, uh, in our discussion. So the four scenarios with my four initial color, you see that the blue one is, the dark blue one is the one that will uh, basically bring the overall distancing support to $100 billion uh, dollars by 2025. Um, when if we continue with the uh, unrestricted discipline, obviously this, uh, no, not additional discipline compared to today, we are at 180 billion, what we have in red. So what we see uh, in particular is to which extent, you know, the fact that we are going both with the movement from the dark green to the light green is the fact that you index your policy space to the evolution of your value of production. And you have some, once again, some countries, including some developing countries, but say we should not do that because big countries are going to spend even more money in the future. But moving from the dark green to the light green has a big impact on policy space for India, China, and Russia that are going to continue to expand their value of production. So saying that they have to get stuck to discipline based on today value of production or something that is going to be indexed in the future is a big uh, issue and challenge for them. Moving from dark green to light blue, the main difference is just to have a, a policy, a product specific discipline and overall it doesn't change the big pictures. And the dark blue is going to be the effect of both the um, having this uh, value of production fixed to determine your policy space, but also article 6.2. Next slide, please. So if I think about world prices, because a lot of the discussion about all this domestic support, it's reducing world price, so it's create inequalities and it hurts poor farmers. Overall, as you can see, 
most of the price of the commodity will not be impacted by more than half a percentage point in terms of, uh, of this policy change. So it's still a lot of money when you think about the size of the agricultural markets, but overall it's not um, a tremendous change in world markets, except for a few commodities where current payments are highly concentrated. And you see this, for example, for plant fibers, for cotton, this light blue and dark blue scenario are quite uh, important in, in terms of changing the price of cotton on world markets. Light blue, because we block the concentration, for instance, from the US, we will cut significantly the payment they do to their cotton farmers, but a dark blue also because we are putting constraints on what India is doing with a number of their farm program that benefit cotton producers that actually even if they are a poor cotton producer in India, they are today poor cotton producer in Africa that pay also the price of these policies. So anti-concentration will matter a lot for some uh, specific product and specific product that can have a big value in terms of poverty. Next slide, please. In terms of volume of trade, it's where you are going to see contrasted effects. So you see more trade, let's say for poultry products, for instance, and less trade for cotton because you are redistributing who is exporting and who is importing. So in the case of cotton, for instance, it means that the US will export less cotton uh, because they will produce less cotton and because they don't process it at home, uh, they, they, don't, uh, they need to export it. So if you don't produce, you don't export. So you will see actually a contraction of the world markets for cotton uh, with basically more countries in South Asia or in Africa that can produce their own cotton and also uh, have their own textile industry in some cases. While for uh, poultry sectors, the fact that you are here removing uh, some subsidies, you are basically reducing the production of some countries, including uh, in Europe uh, or um, in the US or in Japan, where you can see new exporters providing and replacing this production. So here also uh, different pictures. Thank you. The next slide, that's good. Um, yes, next slide, Valeria. Thanks. Now, in terms of farm production, um, that's uh, also something that at the end basically matters because policymakers may want to spend money in order to have more production at home. You see that the different discipline will actually lead to this redistribution we were talking about. We are going to reduce production in developed economies. We are not going to destroy the agricultural sectors in farm in developed economies. You see, we are talking about a reduction even for the kind of ambitious scenario we are talking about by 0.6% in real terms. But at the same time, we have an increase within developing countries. So small adjustment that may contribute to make the system a bit uh, fairer. But also if you see what is happening on my dark blue, so it means when we put discipline on Article 6.2, you see that Russia, India, and China and basically India that is using Article 6.2, we see a slight decrease of their farm production when the rest of the developing world, and in particular Africa, is going to produce more. So when we talk about fairness, there is also this question of redistribution between the uh, landscape of emerging uh, and developing economies. Next slide, please. For the sake of time, and I think you get my point about cotton, I'm going to, to, to go over this slide, so I'm going to jump this slide, so next slide, and so the key message. So 
yes, we are going to think about what means special and differential treatment in the world of 2020, not the world of 1995. And as you see, it means actually to rediscuss what means Article 6.2 in terms of development when you are one of the largest um, agricultural exporters that is India, that spent $40 billion in this program uh, that may be needed for some uh, specific uh, part of the farm population in India, but actually create major distortion at the global level, including for uh, poorest uh, and poorer countries. There is a lot of detail in this negotiation, a lot of choices. Uh, it's important to make the right choice uh, on, on each of these assumptions, and this is where we try to, to provide this type of information and we work with the um, negotiators. There is a need of simplification. Uh, what we have here, you see, is already kind of complex, but it's much simpler than uh, just carrying uh, different disciplines for different boxes for different uh, products and so on. We think that using the fixed value of production is a very strong dynamic constraint. And yes, it will make more sense to uh, link it to the current value of production, just to follow how the world evolves. Um, the way to define uh, anti-concentration clause and this upper limit that, that the amount of money you can spend by product is quite important. And we need also to make sure that we have a proper definition of product, because every time you put a loophole, some countries will use it. And last but not least, I think it's also once again for us to say what type of global trading system, what type of discipline we want to achieve uh, both efficiency, economic efficiency, and that's the key goal of WTO initially, but also in a fair way, meaning that countries and the civil society is happy to participate to this uh, global governance experience, and therefore that we can deliver on the SDGs. Uh, thank you for your time. It was a bit long, but you see there's a lot of things going on. Uh, and that, that would be my last word. The type of discipline we are negotiating, and when we put it in an agreement, as you see, we keep them for 25 years. So it's not like if we can uh, have a quick explanation and think that this choice doesn't matter. It will matter for us and for the next generation too. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, uh, Valeria and David. Um, I, I'm going to kick off with one question that I have. Um, you presented a lot of uh, information here um, and uh, very complicated, as you mentioned. So I, ha I have I had a question because so, so the, we know that in many developed countries and perhaps in certain regions, they also have their own tools and models and databases and are running similar scenarios. And then we know in many countries, they probably do not have such capacities and capabilities. So I had two questions. One is um, it, the, the results, results that you're finding on the effects of certain different types of uh, um, policy changes. Um, are, is there a convergence with your uh, between your results and results that are found in other models? That's my first question. And then the second one is in, case, in countries where they don't have such capacity, you had mentioned um, briefly about um, uh, providing these recommendations and and some capacity training uh, building to our negotiators. So, how does that actually happen? How can countries that don't have the tools and so forth get get access to this and and understand and help shape their uh, negotiation positions? Thanks. Um... 
Frank, and here I will, frank, uh, I will thanks also uh, PIM and the CGIR because it's part of my answer to your, uh, to both of your mm -hmm. questions, by the way, meaning mm -hmm. that you know, it takes years uh, and decades to, to develop this type of database, this type of tools, mm -hmm. uh, and where actually you make huge economies of scale. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense for each country to have its own database and its own model to look at some of this global issue and, and global trade-off. So this is what we try to do, to have developed these public goods to some extent, and to, um, I say to some extent, because what is important also is to adapt any public good to the specific needs to a specific negotiators and countries. But yes, we are kind of, of uh, information desk for, for some countries that come to us with questions um, about uh, modalities, uh, for developing their own proposal, so they can be proactive at the WTO, or just to have an idea of what it means for them when you take into account all this complexity. Uh, and so we did just it in a way that uh, actually on our side is fair and, uh, and balanced because we are not promoting any specific interest. I will just say that we also have requests coming from developed economies, in particular small developed economies, that cannot bear the cost of this machinery um, even if they, they are rich countries. Um, now, are our results different from uh, what other institutions are doing? I would say qualitatively, uh, there is not something very revolutionary here, but uh, we have uh, this level of, of details, uh, including with having endogenous change in you eat uh, upper bound. Uh, is something we we really are at the state of the art, and there's not so many uh, um, studies that have all this level of detail at once that uh, we, we can compare to. Um, so that's good, it means that we, we are trying to do our job well. Um, but I think that this, the big question that we have raised, you know, about what means fairness, how we deal with a changing world, uh, it's something that more or less all the quantitative uh, team uh, are well aware of. Now, how we, we, we capture all these details of policy making and, and policy space in models, it's where uh, it's become uh, a lot of craftsmanship. And this is what we do, thanks to uh, your support. Great, thank you. Uh, so a couple of questions have come in. Um, we have one, one question was, uh, is Van, uh, why, why you you have used the WO, WTO classification system for support and not the PSE used by the OECD and other institutions? So maybe you can explain all those terms as well in your answer. Uh, and then there was just a question about uh, on the support uh, within the EU where the graph graph had noted about 10 billion but that the, the common agricultural policy has a budget of about 50 billion a year and he, so there was a question about what explains that difference. So I, I will start with the last one and if Valeria wants to, to follow up after I will uh, she can do it but the main thing is yes the EU is spending 50 billion dollars on our, uh, farm policies through different pillars but only 20, 25% of it qualify as being trade distorting. Basically, the EU following the Uruguay round and a number of reforms has moved to what we call decoupled payments and is using green box. So this is why all the discussion we have about green box can be relevant because we can think that all this money may still have an impact on world markets. But 
you have seen this decreasing graph for the EU. It's just not cutting money to farmers. It's just reallocating from one policy instrument that were uh, very distorsive, like the old common agricultural policy where you produce more, you get more subsidies, to uh, more income guarantee, where independently of how much you produce, you get money. And in some cases, this money through uh, what we call cross-compliance um, can also uh, be used to, to provide environmentally, environmental friendly incentives. Now, uh, about uh, the different metrics of how we, we deal with policy. So yes, there is different way to, to classify and to measure support to, to farmers. Uh, and we have another program uh, supported by PING that is called Ag Incentives, where we have a consortium with basically all the different IOs and where we come with unified indicators. But what I would just say is that, you know, any dollar that is spent is in the economic system and is in the model. Now the question is how we consider it and how we uh, process it. So if you are from an OECD point of view with the producer support estimates, you have an angle that is much more economic oriented, but also to know if these dollars go from one uh, taxpayer to a producer or from one uh, producer to a consumer and vice versa. So there is this logic about who is paying for what with a strong uh, emphasis on economic incentive. When the WTO is first of all a legal framework where you are going to classify policies in many cases based on their legal design and maybe a bit less about their economic impact. And actually in the model, and this is why you have my table with double entry, all the dollars are properly tracked. But now when we change some rules at the WTO, we are going to put a constraint just on this stream of money that belong to the specific box of the WTO. And all the PSE are not blue box or amber box or a green box. Um, most of the PSE are basically uh, amber box, a bit of blue box, but in the PSE you have also all the market price support that are much more related to tariffs, border production and market access that we have not discussed at all here. So when you think producer support estimate at OECD, half of it coming from basically market price support and border protection, that's not covered by this pillar of the WTO discipline. This is about domestic support. This is money spent by government. The market access part is in the market access negotiation that currently are uh, more or less, uh, I will not say dead, but are not moving when for domestic support, we have a bit more hope to see things coming. Okay, very good. Uh, Valeria, I'm did you want to add on? Yeah. yeah, I would just like to add the, um, for uh, David's answer, um, it also highlights the importance of transparency and harmonization, because as it was mentioned, it's um, all domestic support needs to be classified and put in each of these boxes that we've been mentioning. Um, but there is some interpretation of where to put them depending on the countries. So it is very important that everybody agrees on what are the characteristics of each of the programs to be able to put it in each of these boxes. So for example, I don't know, the green box is really good for what um, David was mentioning about um, cross-compliance or conditionality of those policies in which you give um, 
supports to a farmer only if they do something uh, in exchange. And in general, they are conditional to some environmental outcome, which they are good given the climate change and all these things that we want them to, to do. So that kind of uh, programs could be very well uh, done and they are um, advantages for everybody. But the key thing is that all countries need to agree on what are those programs and where to put them. And so in terms of the training and capacity that you were mentioning in the previous question, one of the key things as well is that all countries need to have the uh, local capabilities to really be able to do the notifications in a timely manner as well. Some countries have these notifications very uh, lag and they are not uh, on, on time or things like that, which makes also harder to really do the follow up and, um, and keep talking about this. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I have a couple. I have a few more questions that are, are, are of a technical nature. So let me. I'll read all of them, and maybe that you, you can. Uh, um, maybe that you in your response, they you, they might be linked a little bit. So, uh, first one is: How do you define the discipline applied to Article Six Point Two in your econometric model? What are the pros and cons of using the value of production, and what would be the effect of using the value of production on future policy space of small economies? or countries that are vulnerable to climate change, for example. Uh, related, there's a question uh, that came in. Um, can you explain if the scenarios with entitlements as a percentage of the value of production foresee the same percentage for both developing and developed countries? And uh, a final one was that uh, it was Someone noted that between 2001 and, and 2014, th only three countries have used more than 50% of their available amber box policy space, and only 13% have used more than 10%. So there was a question on why creating, why, why the need to create policy space through a floating limit, if that's the case. So I think they're all kind of related to, to this value of production <laughs> issue. <laughs> so over to you. So, thanks. So, uh, on the discipline of 6.2, uh, what we do in, in some of the last scenario when we basically consider that there is no more 6.2, that's what, what we did. We say that if you are providing input subsidies, it's amber box, whatever the, the targeted population or, or the motivation. So, in the three first scenarios I have uh, shown you, 6.2 is still protected. So, it's like the, the, the green box. All these programs are not impacted by the change in disciplines, while in the fourth scenario, we are saying there is no more 6.2, uh, and your policies has to be classified based on its nature. Um, that's a bit violent, potentially, but I think that, you, you know, we, we, we have to, to clearly revisit 6.2 in the light of what development means today in, in the world of today. Now, the value of production for small economy uh, and just the value of production, yes, value of production is changing every year and potentially your value of production is endogenous, both to prices, but also to the policies you are implementing uh, and, and you potentially to climate change with the fact that if you are hit by negative shock, you are going to have a decrease in the value of production. So what we are proposing first is to take a, a mobile average over uh, the last few years, just to avoid that specific bad years decrease your value of production and therefore make you uh, break the rules. Mm -hmm. So that can help. Um, but at the same time, I think that 
even for countries that will be hit by, by climate change, that may not be a, an issue because if year after year after year, the value of production is going down, just pouring a large amount of money in a distorsive way, I'm not talking about ag-R&D or other things, but in a distorsive way to just maintain your farmers uh, alive is not sustainable after a few years. Uh, so really, yes, this percentage uh, and this indexation is quite important. Now, what we have seen is, yes, you have a number of countries that may not use all their policy space, and Europe is one of them, but just because they shift to, to green box. Uh, two years ago, we, we had the China, that uh, four years ago now, that actually has broken their, their limits. This year, it's India that is breaking the limits and use their peace clause to get protected. And if we um, think about the, the type of stimulus package that, that we are seeing now, uh, even in the US with their farm aspect, they may also break their commitments. So having a discipline and just putting people on, on the right track um, is good because when prices are high, people doesn't want to give additional money to their farmers. But when prices are low, it's where you start to see rich government putting more money to their farmers that increase even more the production, that put even prices down even more, and you have this vicious circle. And at the end, without discipline, it's always the weakest economies that pays the price. So this is why we need it. And of course, uh, Valeria, did, oh, oh, sorry. Just, sorry, just to, to <laughs> say, go on the answer. What we have in the scenario is that we give actually twice the, um, the policy space for developing countries than for developed uh, economies. So when we say, okay, it's 5% for uh, developed economies, it's 10% for developing economies, and so on. And of course, we play with these different thresholds. But for the core scenario I have shown you today, there's this rule. We have another scenario um, where actually we use the same target, but we give just more 15 or 20 years for developing country to get there, because also hopefully in 20 years, most of them will not be developing countries anymore, in particular in terms of agricultural productivity. Great, thanks. Well, there's a few more questions that have come in, but we're running out of time. But uh, let me just uh, let me to, just to change the subject a little bit around the assumptions of the model uh, and some of the results. So you had mentioned this effect, uh, of the effect of cotton. You mentioned as a, as a case in point. Um, if if the recommendations are taken into consideration. So one question that came in was, if you could elaborate a little bit more on on what what would happen uh, in the in the cotton sector, and especially especially as it might apply to um, uh, African countries. So uh, first, uh, I think we'll be happy to answer additional question by email or as a follow up. So. Don't worry, uh, we are also here to answer questions even with the time constraints. Uh, for the cotton case, um, here the situation is by we will what we see that we are going to limit if we put the discipline in the kind of ambitious scenario we have here, we are limiting payment to the US, we are reducing competitiveness of the US cotton and the production. If we do also uh, stringent uh, disciplines for, for India, that will also impact the cotton production in India, and it means more cotton production in Africa, more cotton production in other regions in Asia, and also in Latin America. I just don't want to give a too rosy picture. You know, Brazil is producing a lot of cotton, and they will benefit also from uh, the phasing out of the US if the US limit their subsidies. 
But yes, basically you will see more better price for cotton. So even with the same production, farmers in Africa should get a higher price, but also they will get higher market share uh, in order to provide cotton to Asia, in order that Asia process the cotton or potentially to, uh, to have more uh, local production, but that, that depends not only on farm policies, but something else, you know, to develop your textile uh, sector. It's not just about producing cotton. Great, thanks. Well, um, we're come to the end of our hour. I don't know, Valer Valeria and uh, David, uh, let, me, let, let me see if you have any final uh, words uh, that you may have wanted to say and didn't uh, already in your presentation, or if you wanted to make any final comments on the questions, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. And yes, we do have other questions and we will send those to David and uh, to Valeria and, and we'll make sure that they um, connect to the to those posing the questions so any final words from the two of you <laughs> so i will just say one you know we were initially planning to finish this work to to prepare to the mc12 in kazakhstan in june now it is postponed so we are uh, exploring new scenarios new options so if also uh, i mean the pim community has specific interest in some policy options uh, for instance, we were discussing, you know, what's happened if we don't index on the value of production, but on the number of farmers you have, or, you know, other type of scenarios. Uh, that's something mm -hmm. we will be happy to, to receive comments and ideas in order to make sure that when we look at this policy space and this policy option, we provide information for different ideas and different stakeholders. Great. And Valeria? Any um, no, just to emphasize that um, what we are trying to look for is for a more um, efficient and fair system so that um, all these uh, different options that uh, David just mentioned and, and that they are included in the model is just to try to see, to see an illustration of what's going to be the impact if we go to all, each of these paths in terms of the same thing, efficiency and, 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 and being fair or equity so uh that's something to uh to keep in mind thank you well great thank you very much uh, it was a very very stimulating uh presentation and uh we can tell from the the topical area that uh when you when you wade into the to the waters of domestic support there it's it's a very complicated um uh uh, uh set of connections and relationships that they have throughout the economy and uh the, the, the use of these the, the models is just invaluable and essential to be able to make some understanding of it. And uh, we also know that research in itself in this, this area has is just one input and there's a lot of political economy factors at national, regional, and global levels to consider. So um, so anyway, I, I, I'm glad that many of those have, have come out in, in, in the discussion and uh, uh, thanks uh, to all the participants uh, for their great questions and to the presenters. and. And I wish you well in in, in future, uh, and 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 hoping to to shape the the future of the nego negotiations. So um, thanks, everyone. Thank you thanks. very much, everyone.